battle for the borders. We were building barriers. Why didn't they finish them? The end of Title 42, the beginning of new rules. Who gets in? Who's turned away? This problem has been a continuous problem for us. The community is worried. They want to leave from another state. Reading, writing, and weapons in class this week. It's, it's so important because we have to prevent the weapons from getting into our school. What will it take to make South Florida schools safe? Exceptions to the rule will be that students can bring a personal house. His goal is to take away the ability of educators to speak out. Teachers unions furious over new state law. You know, the school unions have become very partisan. And that, that's, that's not what the schools are about. Sneak preview, a local 10 special, Israel at 75, with some South Florida surprises. All of the misconceptions that are out there are corrected when you come here and see yourself. The big news of the week and newsmakers this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Happy Mother's Day to all the mamas and mine too. The biggest national news of the week is very much a South Florida story. And so today we begin at the border. A live look for you right now at the border crossing in Del Rio, Texas. The end of Title 42 this week and automatic migrant expulsions did not come with the chaos expected. However, the surge of desperate people over the last year and the chaos of what all acknowledge is a broken immigration process is very much front and center. The Homeland Security Secretary addressed that this morning. No longer are individuals arriving at our border of their own volition. They are arriving in the hands of smugglers that wreak such tragedy, such trauma upon their lives. The, the cartels, the smuggling organizations control the land. And so we have not only a security imperative, but a humanitarian responsibility to cut those smugglers out. And that's precisely what we as a, an administration has done. With the end of Title 42 comes new messaging that migrants apply for asylum before getting to the border or be barred for five years. And a judge responded to a challenge from Florida's attorney general with an injunction on releasing those waiting for court dates without tracking mechanisms. In Florida, especially for those who are undocumented, this week faced a one-two punch of the tightening rules at the border and new state law that removes incentives for migrants to come to Florida. People are going to come if they get benefits. And so what you want to do is say there's not benefits for coming illegally. Immigration, national security and humanitarian concerns have long been wedge issues in politics, and that is only ramped up this week. We begin with our conversation with Florida Senator Rick Scott, who was at that Del Rio border as agents there prepared for Title II, Title 42 to expire. So I want to really launch into the topic of the week, which is immigration, both on a federal and state level, of course. Um, you were recently, a week and a half ago or so, at the border at Del Rio, a fact-finding trip. Uh, we were actually there about a year and a half ago when the Haitian migration was happening. Tell us what, what you saw there. And I, I'd like to lift this, if I could, a little bit out of the political rhetoric so that we really get into, like, the issue here. What, what did you see in Del Rio? So what I did is um, I talked to Border Patrol 
and I, you know, I, and also I took an aerial tour. So we went right over the bridge you're talking about where the Haitians were. I also talked to the Texas Department of Public Safety, what they're trying to do. The first thing is just to understand the border is completely open. I mean, there is nothing to prevent somebody from coming across the border. Okay, There's can no I, let me, let me just ask you about that because I've heard you say that, I've heard other people who are at the border say that. When we were there, Del Rio as a, as a gated, fenced, staffed um, port of entry. So when you say, when you say completely open, what does that mean in practical terms? Because really the border is not open, right? So what is, what do you mean by that? So, so if you, if you, if you have your door shut at your house, but you don't lock it, okay, and people can just walk in, or you have, you know, you have your, uh, your house, your front door locked, but all the back of it's unlocked, and they can just walk around, I would say that's open. So that's right? insecure. It's, it's a completely insecure border. Would that be a valid way to, to phrase it? Either way, there's no limitation on somebody coming into the United States of America. Right. So here's what happens. Whatever way you want to come across, you can come across, um, you know, where a, there's a fence and you have to walk around it. Right. Which is all you have to do. Right. Because because, you know, there's a lot of the wall areas where they didn't finish uh, where the gates were supposed to be. So you just have, you might have to walk a little bit. You might have to if you have to go to this area, it might be a little harder because the water is higher and stuff like that. But if you want to come, you can come. So here's what happens. The Border Patrol has no ability to stop you. Their whole job is to just apprehend you, all right, if, they, if you want to be apprehended or chase you if you don't. They take you to a processing center. Within 72 hours, they release you to a non-government entity that your government pays for them to take them somewhere in the United States. So in Del Rio, if you say, I've got family in Miami, they're going to get you to Miami, right? Now they're going to, you know, they'll have a fingerprint. So now here's the deal. Remember this on the, on the Mexican side, I don't know if you saw it, there's IDs everywhere. Now, why would there be all these IDs on the Mexican side? Because the people that don't want people to know who they are, right? They don't want, they don't, you know, they don't have any IDs. They come in. And so if they're in the, uh, in our terrorist watch list, you know, then we can look for them. But if not, or if you haven't been apprehended before, there you just say, "Hey, I'm, I, you know, I'm Glenna, and um, so I'm from, you know, Columbia, and uh, let me in." And so you'll get a you'll get a arrest warrant to be there in ten years or two years or whatever, and you can call, come into the country and you can fly on a commercial flight an hour later. So, Senator, what what you're describing right now is an, an overwhelmed system. But the rules in place, when, when Title 42 has ended, you know, it's not, it's not lawless because Title 8 takes over. Title 8 has been the U.S. Immigration Code for decades. And so, so what you just described is a possibly ineffective but totally constitutional process by which the U.S. has been dealing with people who want to claim asylum or whatnot. So, so really border security and then the humanitarian part of legal immigration is, is kind of the complicated question, is it not? Well, first off, our, under our asylum laws, okay, if you're asking for asylum, you have to ask for asylum in the first country you come to. You can't, you can't come from, from um, 
El Salvador and go through Mexico and then ask for asylum in the United States. That's that is that is not complying with U.S. law. Yeah. All right. So what what the Biden administration decided is they were not going to enforce that. All right. All right. So they they made a decision not to enforce that. Did, did way, I see, though, in the past 48 hours or so that they put out a paper to be published, I think, this coming week, that they are going to be enforcing exactly that, to your point. There's, there's a, a new rule coming down administratively that anyone who does not ask in a thir the third country that they were in will not be admitted into the United States. Have you seen that? Do you, do you know much about that? But here's the problem. The federal government, the Biden administration has lost all credibility. And here's why I would say that. Secretary Mayorkas comes and says, I'm on the committee that's supposed to, have, you know, I'm on Homeland Security. He comes and says, every time he comes and testifies, he says, the border is secure. Okay, would you say your house is secure? If your front door might be locked and you just have to walk around to the back and walk in, would you say that your house is secure? I don't think you'd say that. And do you and think, so, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you do, what do you attribute that to? Is that the number of personnel unable to handle the load? Is that, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, what would you attribute that to? Well, they're not allowed to do their job. If you talk to Border Patrol, they're not allowed to do their job. Uh, they're not allowed to, they're not a, allowed to put up. I mean, logically what you would do is you would put up barriers to where people have to come one place and say, I want to come through and I want to come into your country in a legal manner. That's what you would do. And that's what was attempted with the last administration. Put up barriers to where we know exactly where people are coming, right? That stopped. So I mean, that's, that's, that's stopped. Right. So um, when the Biden administration, when Biden became, uh, President Biden became president, he ended many of President Trump's policies. Uh, Title 42 remained because of a court order until now, but now it, it appears that the Biden administration is actually taking a bit of a harsher turn. And, and I wonder, some of the some of the policies that President Trump had in place was all about uh, the effectiveness was, as we learned from actual people crossing the border, it was about a messaging thing. They heard how harsh and restrictive it was and decided not to come. Um, I wonder how much of messaging and maybe misinformation by traffickers and by smugglers preying on desperate people, how much is the messaging part of all of this? Well, I, I, think, I think the messaging by the Biden administration has been horrible. But Glenn, you, you know, I, my basic, my theory about this is even more simpler. I don't understand. I've never been able to get an answer. Why would Biden want to have a border insecure? Why would it not bother him that 70,000 people died of fentanyl? Why does it bother him when our, we lose our law enforcement agent's life? Why doesn't it bother him when the number of people on the terrorist watch list has skyrocketed that we found, how many, and we know we haven't found him, why does it bother him that he has less security at the border every day? He doesn't. Why do you call it a, a um, why do you characterize it as it doesn't bother him? I'm not, you know, he's not He's not here to answer I'm, that, and, and I would be surprised that it wouldn't bother any human being. Why, why do you characterize it like that? Anything that bothers you, you do something about it, okay? If you, if you like you like when when like when I was governor, okay, when we had Zika, I did something about it, okay. When there was 
the Parkland shooting, I did something about it. When there was a hurricane, I tried to prepare people. Tell me one thing, okay? Like, I, I don't get it. We were building barriers. Why didn't they finish them? We had, when I, when I went down to Yuma a while back, they had, they had the lights and the, and the cameras that they were gonna be able to track. They shut them off. I mean, I mean why? They were, they, were, they were in the process of building roads where Border Patrol could get along the border faster. They quit building them. I mean, I just, you stop, you sit and you stop and you say, so, okay, give me the pitch. They've never had an explanation. So let me, um, let me just, uh, what I heard Secretary Mayorkas, DHS Secretary Mayorkas say in some press conference on tape, he pointed the finger at Congress for the inability of Congress to come up with comprehensive immigration reform. And that's there. You know, there are South Florida lawmakers who were really involved in doing some of that over the last decades. But there has been this impasse in Congress as a whole to reform immigration as a whole, which brings us to crisis by crisis. What do you think that is valid? Is that a valid complaint from the administration? Well, first off, if I, if when I became governor, if I, the first thing I said is, let me blame everybody else for my problems, okay? That, and then when I was in business, if, if I hired somebody and said, look, I'm just gonna complain about somebody else, I'm gonna complain about everybody else. He has things he can do. Should Congress have Im comprehensive immigration reform? You better believe it. Do I believe in legal immigration? Absolutely, okay? But so what, so by the way, I'm, I go, I'm at all the committee meetings. I haven't seen a proposal by Mayorkas. I haven't seen one proposal to, to what he would fix. And what I do know is he's not enforcing our asylum laws. You know, and it, you know, I don't, you can't, you know, I've been around Biden all the while. Biden has decided not to have the barriers. Biden has decided, we've, I've made proposals to increase the number of border patrol agents. They block it, they block it all the time. I mean, I mean, Glenna, my first year, I, I went to the floor twice to fix the temporary protective status, and Democrats blocked it, and something the Democrats had proposed before. So, so there's but, no, I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad that he says he's somebody else, but what's he doing? So one of the things, let me just in the short time we have together, one of the things I've seen, to your point, uh, on a DHS paper is, um, attributing the surge of the border crossers to instability, political and economic instability around the world, responsible for a border surge greater than at any time since World War II. That was kind of the broad picture. So is there, I know the United States aid to especially Central American countries, a lot of that was curtailed under President Trump. Uh, there is some. Is there a thought of putting aid at the at the cause, if not the symptom, and bolstering the economy and maybe eliminating or trying to corruption in Central American governments in order to stop the, the intention of leaving and coming toward the United States? Does the instability in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other places, does it cause problem? Absolutely. Well, it causes migration, certainly. We, we see that right here. I completely agree with you. Now here's here's my here's what I'll tell you. Okay, Biden has done nothing to create stability in Cuba. Matter of fact, he's made it worse. He's he won't even call out 
that the, the peaceful protesters should be released. Biden has done nothing other than but help Maduro in Venezuela. He's done nothing to call out Ortega in Venezuela in uh, uh, in um, Nicaragua. And by the way, Petro in Colombia, which was used to be part of a terrorist group, right, is a friend of Maduro's. He hosts him to the White House now. Tell me what the Biden administration is doing to say if we got better government in these countries, that that we would have less migration. Absolutely. Is that something you but would Biden, favor? Is is that an, is that a, a direction you would favor for for funding and policy? Well, what I favor is I would favor is how you get better government. Just here's the here's the deal. If we just give money that goes to Maduro, right? We give money that goes to Maduro. How is that going to help anybody? It helps Maduro. Yeah, that would have to be a, a, a carefully worded policy to just like for Cuba and Venezuela, get money into the hands of people and not the government, to your point. How about getting better government? Yeah. Senator, I know you're looking up and you're being told you are out of time. <laughs> and I know your, uh, your schedule is really busy. Listen, really appreciate you coming on with us and we look forward to the next time soon. Our thanks to Senator Scott. Hours before Title 42 expired, Congress voted up a sweeping immigration bill with a South Florida sponsor and a party line vote. That bill and the opposition is next. Steve. South Florida's members of Congress have always been among the most involved in crafting immigration reform, though for decades compromise has been elusive. This week, South Florida Republican Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart sponsored the latest reform bill and it passed the House this week by six votes. McClintock provides real solutions to restore order to the southern border, strengthen our national security, enhance our broken immigration system, and protect innocent minors while enforcing the rule of law. The rule of law, Mr. Speaker. So if you're Florida's member of Congress, members of Congress split right along party lines. Asterisk, Congressman Jared Moskowitz didn't vote. Congresswoman Sheila Sherfilis McCormick voted against the bill and also this week spoke out against the state law signed this week with stricter rules for migrants in the state. And with that introduction, Congresswoman, it is great to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for having me, Glenna. Nice to see you again. Thank you so much. So let's start out with that House bill that passed the House by six votes on Thursday. You were a no vote on it. Pretty sweeping, a lot of components. Why? What's your opposition? Well, the bill doesn't deal with the root cause. What it does is just a remain in Mexico policy that we've seen doesn't really work. Specifically, what we were looking at when I spoke to the Rules Committee on behalf of Foreign Affairs is that we see that more people are fleeing and coming into the country or trying to get to the border because of the instability in their own countries. And we have a responsibility to work through every single channel, especially our diplomatic channels, to incentivize people to stay in within their own countries. But just ignoring the root causes and sending people back to Mexico and thinking that's going to fix our solution is definitely what we should not be doing. So that was our main reason for being against this bill. But also, if we see the rhetoric that's been surrounding it, all the hate information, the hateful words, talking about who are real Americans and trying to define and divide our country, um, that's really what's at the heart of this bill also, is trying to fear-monger people into believing that our borders are open, which in fact they're closed. No one's talking about how we've already confiscated over 400 million worth of 
fentanyl, um, over 5,000 people who were carrying it on those lists. No one's talking about all the security places and mechanisms we have in place at the border, which is actually the truth. And so if we're going to deal with immigration, if we're going to deal with this migrant issue and this crisis, we have to be honest with the American people and be honest with our colleagues and stop fear-mongering. At, at best, this is really petty politics, which is just there to get a headline. And if they were interested in putting forth a bill to deal with the root causes, we would look at the rise of authoritarian regimes, but we would also lend ourselves out more to increase democracies and incentivize people to stay home. Okay, so we actually talked a little bit about all of those things. I want to, let me rewind to the beginning, because you just talked about a lot that frames our conversation, I think. The Remain in Mexico policy was actually a, a Trump-era policy that was reversed by President Biden and put back in the courts. And now Secretary Mayorkas just this morning reiterated a fairly new directive that indeed migrants will have to apply, maybe not in Mexico, but whatever third country they come from, kind of a remain in wherever policy that it's in place right now under the Biden administration. So, so that's one I'd like to hear your perspective on. Um, number two, some of the components in this bill, which the Republicans actually said is just a start, to your point, is um, resume building a wall, grants money actually for law enforcement at the border uh, prohibits processing outside the legal ports of entry in other words people will have to come and apply in legal ways certainly that's something that by a bipartisan coalition can get behind those things no well, there's certain aspects that we can get behind. Building the wall, I mean, this is a talking point that they have been doing from the Trump administration, and building a wall wasn't effective. That is not the right direction for us to go in, especially right now looking at this crisis. But when we talk about how expanding more um, border patrol, making sure that we have more security, that's something we can get, we can sign on to. But what they're really pushing is this narrative that every migrant who's coming to the border is being incentivized because the borders are open, which is absolutely false. They keep attacking the narrative of migrants all carrying fentanyl, which is absolutely false. The truth is that the Remain in Mexico policy was actually blocking asylum seekers, political asylum seekers. That is one of our integral rules and beliefs that we have throughout the entire country and the world, that if you are an asylum seeker, you have a right to come in and plead your case. And one thing I want to mention also, millions of people try to get into the United States. Millions of people are turned away. If our borders were in fact closed, how would millions of people be turned away? Way. And that's when I say we have to be honest when we're talking to our constituents, when we're talking about immigration. We can't just keep on saying the borders are open when we know they're not. We spend millions of dollars protecting our borders. If our borders were open, how would we be able to get over 400 million in fentanyl? How would we be able to find the people on our terrorist list if our borders were open? So let me, so let me ask you this. I, to your point, this has been such political rhetoric on, on both sides that maybe part of the problem in, in coming to compromise is that nobody wants to let go of their talking points. We'll talk about that maybe, but, but what I wanted to really ask you is, we, we talked with Senator Scott, the, the borders, to your point, are not open, but are they insecure? Do you feel like as much fentanyl as being, is a, that is caught, as many smugglers that are caught, and of course there are, do you feel like there is a secure border? Or, as Secretary Mayorkas just said this morning, there, there's a sea change in that it's the smuggled people by, you know, so many more smuggled people, misinformation, disinformation, spending their life savings on being told you can cross the border and then facing the reality. It is there 
an insecure border because of all of these components. Can, can you say that? Well, we can agree that there is insecurity at the border and we're working proactively to figure out how we can slow down and how we can make sure that the border is secure. Now, if we remember, there was a, um, a patrol a pilot program that the president announced, which is the parole program. We saw more people at that point were applying to come into the United States through that means, which is successful. However, we still have a lot of blockades getting into um, the United States. We still have a bottleneck because we don't have enough officials who are working at the borders. And what's going on in the country, we have have to take that into consideration. Um, this is the first time that we're seeing so much instability in the Caribbean, so much instability in South America and Latin America, and that's what's really driving everyone to our borders. People are actually risking their lives trying to get there, but it's because they're hopeless. And so we've had several conversations, especially in foreign affairs, on how could we help people be incentivized to stay home. I've had several conversations, even with the vice president, of how can we de-risk their economies by supporting them so people can invest in their economies and invest in making sure they have jobs at home. That is really our goal. But it seems as this election keeps ramping up, we keep going back to those old talking points of hate, build a wall, these illegals. If you have watched these hearings, it breaks my heart because I felt like we were one step away from saying that all immigrants are no good. People talked about who are real Americans. How dare you? Our country is made out of immigrants. We've all come here looking for a better life. This is the Everyone looks at the United States as a beacon of hope. So to be in those hearings, those committee hearings, and to hear that, it breaks my heart because we're actually rolling away from who we are as Americans. And we are that beacon of hope. We are a democracy. And we have a responsibility to assist our neighbors in keeping control of their actual democracies. We've seen an even rise in authoritarian regimes in the Caribbean, in Latin America. We're seeing China's being more and more effective in those nations because that last administration had a policy where they didn't intervene. They weren't good neighbors. And the truth of the matter is that Russia and China take advantage of that. And that's why we have so much insecurity. That's why we have so many people at our borders. And we have to address that. Certainly, South Florida knows that probably better than almost anywhere else in the country. Congresswoman Sheila Sherfalis McCormick, great to have you in the program and look forward to having you again soon. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. And next, big changes for Broward schools. The search for a superintendent, the backlash over those clear backpacks. Just some of the questions for a high-profile board member with us live next. schools are dealing with an onslaught of issues this week from trying to choose a transformational new superintendent to safety concerns, bomb threats and a series of weapon like items brought to schools. A lot to talk about with school board member Dan Foganoli, who was among those with the governor in South Florida this week as he signed a series of bills into law that make wholesale changes to state education. Dan Foganoli, great to have you back on the program. Welcome. Thank you so much and happy Mother's Day. Thank you, sir. So I want to start with um, this morning, a little news this morning. There was an arrest. Uh, someone arrested a 16-year-old for making bomb threats this week at, at Broward Schools. And then you tweeted pictures of what, what looked like weapons. Um, and it was like this series of security issues. Of course, since February 14th, 2018, security mm -hmm. is top of mind with everyone in the Broward School District. What, what is happening? What's going on? Frame that for us. Sure. And 
That's a good question, Glenna. Thank you so much for asking. And first thing I want to say is that our schools are safe. Um, our security team, SROs, guardians, our monitors, they do such a great job every day to make sure our schools are secure and and for our kids to learn. So I want to say thank you to our you know great staff and they do a great job. Things we've been seeing between threats and the reason why I was compelled to even tweet those pictures are we get those alerts every single day. Um, whether it be toys, but we've had situation with real weapons get onto our school campuses, it's really bothersome. So as a school board member, I know that my colleagues feel the same way. Not only is it upsetting, it gets us angry, but it really saddens us. Um, especially with the threats, we wanna make sure that those things, are, they're not, it's not a joke. We wanna make sure that kids know that it, it may seem like a joke that you're gonna be doing a threat to cause havoc and cause chaos, but we take those things serious and we're gonna take care of those situations as, as need to be. So let me ask you about this sort of like a little backlash to a backpack idea, clear backpacks mandated as of next school year. Um, certainly no, so we were just talking here in the studio, no, no security effort is ever a bad thing, but practically speaking, what does this clear backpack really do? I mean, if someone means harm, there's certainly pockets and other ways. You, t tell me what you think clear backpacks would do for security. For sure, and um, I never thought that I would be getting backlash for trying for more security, uh, for pushing for me to make our schools more secure. You know, here in Broward County, we meet the standard for safety. Um, you know, I believe as a board, we just want to say we don't want to meet the standard. We want to set the standard. I believe that we're going to push to not only just be the safe district in Florida, we want to be the safest district in the country. You know, so what do we have to do? So when it comes to clear backpacks, I understand that a lot of people feel it's a, um, you know, false perceived safety measure. But for us, it's a layer. That's just a layer that many things that we're trying to push to make our district safer um, and I'm gonna use an example. We saw this two weeks ago and Channel 10 reported this, that the situation that a father put a gun, a loaded weapon inside his elementary school student's backpack, his son's backpack. And the son made it to school, had no knowledge that the gun was in the backpack. So I just use that situation to ask when it comes to clear backpacks, because would the father do the same thing if it was a clear backpack? I think that he would think twice. So if it's just one situation that I could prevent of a weapon getting onto a school campus, I'm all about it. But for me, it's a lot of people are getting the wrong idea thinking we're saying clear backpacks and thinking that's the only thing that we're going to do. No, it's just a layer of multiple conversations that we want to have of how we're going to secure our schools. Yeah, understood. I wanted to ask you, Dan Foganolia, about you. Uh, you were with the governor this week, so was I, when he signed this um, a whole slate of education bills into law. Some of those were actually bipartisan supported bills. It comes with things like a teacher's bill of rights, giving teachers a bit more leeway and discipline in their classroom, attention to eliminating social media during class. Um, some of them were not so bipartisan, and one of those was a bill. It's labeled Paytech, Paycheck Protection, but it's mm -hmm. really about putting rules and mandates on teachers' unions. And you were fully supported of that, and I wanted to sort of get your opinion on that because in our next segment, we're going to have uh, someone from the state teachers' union also talk about the lawsuit filed against it. So what is it about um, what some are calling a union-busting bill that is favorable for you? Yeah, I mean, well, for, for us, and I see that the governor signed that. Of course, I'm not a state legislator. Um, they're in support of the governor, of course, for, you know, term limits. I was glad to get that marker when he signed that because um, I'm in support of that. But when it came to that bill, it's just really teacher empowerment. When you have, have had the decision to, you know, be able to take money out of your check and to have that 
And he spoke about that, you know, that day about talking about feeling pressured into agreeing to that. But just having that choice is something that they're giving the teachers back and giving more empowerment to our teachers. How is the district? We've had the union president, Anna Fusco, has been on this program. How is the relationship between the union and Broward and your your school board? How would you characterize well, I mean, it? I can speak myself personally. Um, I get along with President Fusco really well. Um, and for me, it's, it's always having and being open to listen. Um, we always have to remember, regardless of whether it be union, the school board, um, staff, we're all on the same team here. We all are, have the end goal of making sure that our kids have a safe environment, a good education, um, and it's important to have a good relationship. So for me and, and President Fusco, I'm always open to listen to her. Um, we have a good relationship. Uh, but I feel like with pressures all the time, they want, you know, they want school boards and unions to, to battle. And I don't think that's healthy for the students by the end of the day. Um, and I believe we, we have a healthy relationship, but we should build on that to make it better. I wanted to, in the short time we have together, ask you about the search for a superintendent. There were 26 people that applied, 15 qualified, at least one backed off. Um, it's kind of a drama, way too much of a detailed drama to get into in the short time we have together. So I'm just going to lay out, give us an update. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be getting updates this week. And, and what happens in the school board that's not drama, Glenna? I feel like Good almost everything, everything feels like a drama. But for us, I've made my point very clear. Um, in Broward, we've, we've been doing this whole thing, and we don't want a superintendent. We want the superintendent. Um, and that's why we opened up that search to make more people. We knew more people wanted to apply for the job, so we opened it up. And we believe that Broward is a great place to be. You know, um, it's, it's been a lot of controversy, a lot of pressure here on our board, but this is a great district. We have the best students, the best staff, um, you know, and it's just, it's the best place to be. So nice to hear. And the devil is always in those details. So, Dan Poganoli, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Glenna, and happy Mother's Day. Thank you, sir. That new law that we talked about called Paycheck pay Protection, the teachers call it union busting, and the head of Florida Education Association is with us live next. Bill signing blitz this week on one day signing those five education related bills at once the result of a strategic effort to make or remake state education more conservatively. One of those new laws puts mandates and restrictions on teachers unions. We've been talking about that the very next day several groups filed suit and one of them is the Florida Education Association. Andrew Spar is the president right here with us live to talk about it. Hi Andrew. Hey, good morning and uh, happy Mother's Day to you and all the mothers out there. Thank you so much on all our behalf. So let's talk about that lawsuit. On what grounds have you challenged this new law? Uh, so this law is on a constitutional grounds, on our right to free speech, our right uh, to free assembly, and our right, right to equal protection under the United States Constitution. But the bill itself, the, the things that it does actually, if I'm reading them correctly, gives teachers the total choice of how to pay union dues, whether or not to be part of the union. Well, what is unconstitutional about that? 
That's actually incorrect. Uh, right now in the state of Florida, and, and I want to start by saying this, as a teacher's union, myself, as a union president, I am a teacher. I am an elementary music teacher. Uh, president Anna Fusco in Broward County is an elementary teacher. Yes. Uh, yes. We are teachers who are make come together to have a voice in our union. And right now we can choose whether or not to join our union and how we want to pay our union dues. What this does is it says you don't have that choice anymore. You can no longer do the safest, easiest way to pay your union dues should you choose to join the union, which is through paycheck deduction. However, that right is still afforded to police, firefighter, corrections office, and probation officers uh, in the state of Florida, which gets into that disparate treatment uh, against educators in the state of Florida who are predominantly female. So forgive me if this sounds nitpicky, and I don't mean it like that at all. I'm just trying to, as a layperson, understand so what? Couldn't you do a bank withdrawal? I mean, if it's if it's how you're paying your union dues, w w isn't there a workaround for that? Isn't there a, a bigger picture here? Sure, there is a different way to collect dues. We're working on that now. But again, the easiest, safest way to do it is through paycheck deduction. It is how we pay for football tickets, how we pay for voluntary benefits that we may have through our district, how we make contributions to the United Way, the United Negro College Fund, and other organizations as well. Uh, so why just single out the voice of how teachers and staff in our schools come together to advocate for kids in our profession? Can you define, uh, there have been, in, in our tenure reporting here, there have always been sort of a push and pull between unions and districts. Unions are arguing and negotiating on behalf of teachers. But what, what is, in your opinion, the role now of a, of a union, of a teacher's union in a district? Uh, so first of all, I, I would argue that we actually get along really well with districts throughout this state. Uh, sure, when we sit down to bargain, we're on other sides of the table, it's more adversarial. But as a whole, we advocate for our profession, we advocate for our students, we advocate for public schools, something we all do together. Um, and, and I think in society today, we're kind of looking for where is the division, where is the division? That's what upsets us, I think, most about this. Teachers know they have to be able and comfortable being able to speak up for students. When they see students not getting the services they need, they want to know they have a way and that someone has their back in speaking up for those students. When they see that their profession is under attack and they want to push back, as we've been doing in the state of Florida, then we should be able to do so in a collective and powerful way without the threat of retaliation that we're now being subjected to, just like Disney World. Understood. So let me ask you about this law, which is actually called, a t well, one of the law uh, laws signed, Teacher's Bill of Rights, that gives teachers all kinds of leeway that they perhaps didn't have before in working in the classroom, in disciplining students, in not uh, taking away a fear of retribution, doing what they think is right, and under this administration, um, really padding some paychecks in various ways, be it bonuses or raises of starting, starting teachers' salaries. So all that said, is that something that you get behind? There are elements of the Teacher Protection Act that we do support. Some of them have already been in place for a while, which is the right of teachers to uh, write referrals on students, have students removed from the classroom when they're disrupting the learning process. We need to continue to strengthen that area, and we need to continue to have this sacred bond that exists between 
teachers and parents. So together we can make sure that every child is getting the education uh, they deserve and need. But let me take a moment and talk about pay in the state of Florida. It is a flat out falsehood to say that teachers' paychecks are being padded in some way. They're not. Here's the fact of the matter. Florida ranks 48th. 48th in the nation in average teacher pay down one spot since this governor took office. Bonuses don't get us there. We have to really invest in the pay of teachers and we have to recognize that over the last 12 years in the state of Florida, 20 plus laws have been implemented that we now call the teacher experience. Penalty. Okay, so let me, can I just play devil's advocate for one moment? Sure. If all of, with all of those things that you just said, where have unions been and is there an argument that the unions haven't been effective in fighting that? We've been out there fighting big time to try to change the law in the state of Florida. We thought we had it done this year till the governor said, no way, we're not going to fix the compression issue and the fact that our veteran teachers, our experienced teachers are being left behind. But we're going to continue to advocate. It is how we do it. Look, a little over 50% of teachers in the state of Florida choose to belong to the union. I wish more would because that's how we build our voice. And in states where teachers are paid significantly better, where students perform significantly better, those states have much higher union density percentages. Andrew Spar with the Florida Education uh, Association, excuse me. Um, we really value your time. I hope you will be able to come back and talk more because there, there are so many components to education right now that is such a focus of Florida. And, uh, and I appreciate that you came on and talked about just this little one. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. I'll come back for sure. Excellent. Thanks so much. And up next, a preview of a local primetime special airing tonight, Israel at 75. The state of Israel marks 75 years of existence this month. Today, actually, if you go by the U.S. calendar, though by the Hebrew calendar in Israel, they celebrated two and a half weeks ago. And we were there during those celebrations, documenting the people and the places that have such connections to South Florida. And we put together a primetime special all about that to air later this evening. Here is a preview. Celebration against all odds. These past 75 years, we faced six times full-scale war in Israel. So many other campaigns, but full-scale, six times. Hey, welcome back. And all the South Florida connections. And I fell in love with being here. Well, I'm supportive of Israel. I think being here is showing support. And we've been able to hold this place together despite having all of these threats. Complicated, diverse, historic. It's where if everything goes wrong in the world, where Jews are supposed to be safe. And all of the misconceptions that are out there are corrected when you come here and see yourself. Israel at 75. Israel at 75 airs tonight right here at 7 o'clock on Local 10, and I hope you will tune in. And we will be right back.
watch today's interviews again or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, all you have to do is scan this QR code with your phone and it'll take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And you know well, you are a big part of this program and you can connect with us so easily on social media. We are so easy to find, follow, and reach out right there at Glenna WPLG. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We thank you so much for being with us this hour. Happy Mother's Day to all, including Arlene, my mama. Thanks so much and keep in touch.